fitting that we are uh, undertaking more intentional fellowship through the fall as we preach through a book where John holds out to us the goodness of our fellowship with God and with each other, real flesh and blood fellowship in his church. This morning we move on in 1 John to the next six verses, and last week we ended with John's pronouncement that he's writing all of these things so that our mutual joy will be full. And he was talking there about the joy that he has shared with Jesus himself and all of the other apostles who touched and saw and heard from him physically, really face-to-face present with him, and the joy that we share as his church, joined mystically in his body, enjoying fellowship with him. This morning, as John continues to preach to us and moves on in his pastoral theology, this joy continues in an unexpected and bracing reality. As we move on in 1 John, you'll notice several passages that move back and forth very quickly between the ideas of comfort and conviction. And so, little Christians, I'll ask you your question a little early this morning. What does God do to us in salvation? Let me say it carefully. Not what things does God say about us. Not what things does God change around us. But in His salvation for us, how does God's grace change us as people? This morning, as we all listen to these six verses from 1 John, it will feel repetitive. It will make more sense if you expect it to rock back and forth between comfort and conviction. John is going to move back and forth between positive and negative diagnostics. So as you read through it with me, listen for it to alternate. Verse 5, very positive. Verse 6, negative and convicting. Verse 7, very positive. Verse 8, a negative conviction. Verse 9, positive again. This is the good news of Jesus and our fellowship with him as John preaches it to us as the church of the firstborn. John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Will you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you this morning and approaching your mercy seat where you answer prayer. We thank you for your grace to us that we do not perish in your presence. Instead, we are lifted up and embraced. Our faith is strengthened, our hopes confirmed. And we ask this morning that in this passage that alternates between comfort and conviction, you would magnify for us our comfort, that you would fill up our joy and let us find our greatest peace and our greatest joy rooted in who you are 
in what you have done for us and in the work that you are doing in us by your Spirit. We ask that you would do these things for your glory and our good as your people whom you love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Excuse me. Well, last week I harped on the idea that Jesus invaded his creation by coming really and truly in the flesh. If you heard no other word last week, you probably heard the words real or really 50 to 60 times. I said them really often. And Jesus did invade his creation by coming really and truly in the flesh. And as John moves us into this pastoral theology for the church, he's saying that Jesus didn't just invade his creation around us, but Jesus and his grace and the work of his gospel have invaded us to make us his new creation. And that's where John will take us through the bulk of his book. And for the rest of his book, we're going to alternate constantly between comfort and conviction because the grace of God is not safe but good. Because God's love for us at times feels reckless, but it's purposeful and it's effective. And so John is moving us, starting this morning through the rest of the book, to see the joy that he spoke of in our last passage, the joy of transformed participation in the grace of God. If I had to retitle the book, which I wouldn't do, I wouldn't retitle a biblical book, that's probably dangerous. But if I were going to rebind it and sell it on Amazon, I might retitle it, The Joy of Transformed Participation in the Grace of God, because that message will run all the way through this letter. In the last year, year and a half, it's kind of fallen off lately, but our five-year-old daughter, Sophie June, would use the phrase real life for real life to describe things that she meant were really true, both declarations that are true, but also practices. So she would tell us, I love this food. This is my favorite meal. No, for real life. But then she would move past the declaration and she'd say, I want to have this every day, every night. I want this for dinner, for real life, Mommy, for real life. And it was perfect because that's the way truth in real life works. It didn't happen, but what she intended was to say, I mean this without hyperbole, and I mean this more deeply than just sentiment. I'm not just saying this to make you feel good. I'm not just saying this because I'm impressed suddenly and spontaneously. I really wish we could have this every day for real life. That's what Jesus is doing in the gospel. All of the promises that he makes, all of the things that he gives to us, all of the pronouncements he makes about who we will be, they're not just values and ideas. John alluded to that. Not John the Evangelist or Epistle Writer, John Berger, sorry. John Berger alluded to that when he prayed for us this morning, that the grace of God would be more for us than just a value. It would translate into virtue. That's John's message in this letter. That those two things in the grace of Jesus are wed together. They are married 
to value Jesus, to value His cross and resurrection, to value His grace, really means that in real life, He grows in us virtue because He values us. And He values His own righteousness and His own holiness. And we are created for Him, not the other way around. All through the book, and we'll see this later as we move through the book in subsequent weeks, all through the book we will hear the refrain, from the beginning. John will talk about things that were declared to us from the beginning, things that were preached to us from the beginning. In last week's passage, he talked about all that was from the beginning, the life, the eternal life that was, that existed in the beginning, that life was manifested. All through the book he has this theme that the gospel of Jesus, the goodness of God, the redemptive purposes of God for us as the new creation and all of creation around us, these things are not new. This is not that God changed his mind or had an epiphany and figured out how to fix things. He has always intended these things. And now they are sprouting and blossoming and blooming and bearing fruit and being manifest and obvious. When we think about God being faithful and just, we're saying that God is upright, that He's true, that He deals straightforwardly. And so what we have in the gospel, as John preaches it to us in this letter, what we have is the one who in himself is right, God himself, taking a creation gone askew, and untwisting it to set it right again. So that the creation is restored and remade and redeemed to be what has been intended from the beginning. And so John roots the message of the gospel there in verse 5. It's not necessarily in what we do. It's not necessarily in the things that we invent to say about God. It's in who God is Himself. This is the message you have heard from Him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. I said last week, and I'll say again to you this week, you cannot have John's letters without John's gospel. His letters would feel like vague and open-ended statements. You need the context of who Jesus is, what His ministry was like, what His death accomplished, the power of His resurrection, the joy and hope that He holds out to us, the promise of the Spirit, the goodness of sanctification, all teased out for us over 21 chapters. You need all of those things in every passage of 1 John. So when John says, God is light, you should hear all of the echoes from John's Gospel. You should hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Singular. I am the light of the world. There is no light for the world apart from me. You should hear John's opening statement that light entered the creation and the darkness never overcame it. Even in John 3, when Jesus says that the light has entered the world and evil people loved darkness and hated the light because it was exposing and unnerving, even so, darkness did not overcome it. You should hear Jesus' statement that all who believe in Him in John 12 will be children of light. 
That's John's message here. He's making the turn early in this letter to see that who we are becoming is rooted in who God is and what He intends for us. And rather than just leave it vague, some spiritual notion that God is light, left for you to attach whatever meaning you want to the word, John will tease this out through the rest of the book. That biblically, the concept of light, this idea of being light, is moral and spiritual, but it's also affective. It's also rooted in love. Through the book, he will make several more statements about what being a part of the light does to us, what being in the light does to us. Diagnostically, how you can tell if someone is in the light or in darkness. It's not left to be vague and self-defined. In this passage, he ties the idea of God being light and the absence of darkness to God's faithfulness and His justice. I told you if I were going to summarize the book, I would say this book is about the joy of transformed participation in the grace of God. If I were going to summarize this passage, I would say that John is holding out for us the good news that God who is faithful and just is faithful and just in making us as His people faithful and just. Throughout John's Gospel and in this book, he doesn't use the word adopted. We as Reformed Christians use the word adopted, and it's good biblical language, it's good theological language. We love the forensic and legal aspects of salvation. We love the freedom and immediacy of justification by faith alone that is a declaration made over us, a changing in our status, our guilt forgiven before we are changed in our nature perfectly, before we are perfectly sanctified. That's good doctrine. It's really bad doctrine if it's left alone, if it's left just to to sit there and stagnate. As Reformed Christians, we tend to love Paul's emphasis on these things, and those things are good, but we need John's balance that we are actually born again internally. The Spirit actually takes up residence in us. Seeds of grace are planted in us and bear real fruit. We are really changed from the inside out. Not explosively all at once. We are not sanctified in an instant and made perfect in a day. But having been born of God, we are given more than just His name. We are certainly given His name. But we are made to share, if I can be this crass, we are made to share in His DNA so that as we grow up in Him, we start to resemble Him in who He is. I don't mean that we become God. I don't mean that we replace God. But as His children, we grow up and resemble Him. And so in verse 7, 
When you read that the blood of Jesus his, sin, Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin, you could read that several ways. John means it more fully than cleansing us from the guilt, the legal status that is attached to sin. You get to see that more clearly when you get down to verse 9. When the faithfulness and justice of God are on display, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, yes, to forgive us our sins, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word that you have that's translated just is the Greek word righteous. He is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. There's a word play that's lost when it's translated into English in most of your translations. What God is faithful and just to do in the gospel is actually change us and strip away the parts of us that don't resemble Him and replace them with His righteousness. And that righteousness takes up residence in us, yes, as legal declaration that we are forgiven, that we are acquitted, that we are accepted and adopted, but it's more than that. His righteousness takes up residence in us the way that Christ took up residence in the world in flesh and blood, as Sophie June would say, in real life. What we have in this passage is God as faithful and just. God as faithful and just in Himself. And God as faithful and just in relationship to the creation or the way that He interacts and acts upon His creation. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to make a difference in us, to make us resemble Himself in that faithfulness and justice. That's what the cleansing is supposed to mean. That's how the cleansing is supposed to be understood. (coughs) A lot of you have dogs. And a lot of you have gone through the pains of housebreaking a puppy. A lot of you have carpet, so you know where this illustration is headed. While housebreaking a dog they will uncleanse your carpets. And you may hire someone to come clean your carpet. And they may promise you that they will cleanse your carpet. The promise left on its own does you no good. When you write them a check, the receipt on its own that says these carpets are cleansed with your signature, that does you no good long term. If salvation were nothing but the declaration that we're cleansed, if it were nothing but that, it would be fiction and it would be hollow. I don't mean to undermine the doctrine of justification. I only mean to highlight for us that John is preaching to us a goodness and the good news that is deeper than a single declaration. We are declared righteous But John, through this book, is going to hold out to us the goodness that God actually changes us to match what we've already been declared to be. 
God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. We are born again so that we resemble the God who has birthed us. As we make our way through 1 John, this is going to fall out in several different cleansings, several different changes. And I don't want you to lose sight as we move through the book that these happen in real life. Part of what makes us squirm as we read through the book of 1 John is that it's so gritty and vivid and blunt. All of the goodness he preaches to us is goodness translating into real life. And so through the book, he's going to talk about the change that God works in us as he cleanses us. He's going to change what and whom and how we love. Not the way that we value love, not the way that we understand love, not the way we articulate love, how we actually love. That's going to be the diagnostic later in the book. Loving our brothers and sisters, loving his church, and loving them with his love the way that he does. Not to earn his love, but because we have been loved by him. Because we have been born by him. Because we have his spirit at work in us. Because he loves this kind of love and wants to see it active in his church. He's going to want to see it in us in real life. You see it even in this passage. In a small glimpse with the summary statement in verse 6. If we, have, if we say that we have fellowship Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Having fellowship with Him is actually effective. Being around Him, being indwelt by Him, being acted upon for him, these things actually affect us and make obvious changes in us. Again, not all at once, but over time. So that truth becomes more than just what we say, more than what we value, more than what we write down on purpose statements and doctrinal statements. Truth takes up residence in us. Truth is alive in the flesh so that we practice the truth. As John is refuting heretics who have assaulted the church in the first century, as he's battling misunderstandings and willful denials of who Jesus is, one of the things he's taken on is a doctrinaire apathy toward real life. A sophisticated version of, of gospel proclamation that denies the gospel actually makes real changes in God's people. To have fellowship with him in truth works out in a practice of the truth. Through the book, he will address more of the heresy and false teaching, and he will say one of the changes that God works in us is a growing discernment, an ability to perceive and embrace orthodox teaching, not so that we can be seen as smart, not so that we can be seen as cosmopolitan Christians, 
but so that we can love Jesus as he is instead of the fiction we make for ourselves. Loving Jesus as he is will work out just as Jesus preached to us in the gospel. That being connected to him the way branches are connected to the vine, that loving him will actually work out in keeping his obedient or keeping obedience to his commandments. That being joined to him organically and participating in his life, being made alive in him will actually work out in fruit. There is going to be a growing righteous obedience. And John will preach the goodness of that to us through the entire book. And that will be part of our joy being made full, like he preached to us last week. I hope that this doesn't sound heavy to you. I know from having several conversations with you and knowing my own heart that a lot of times the word obedience feels heavy. The word commandment sounds burdensome. It sounds like legalism. It sounds like moralism. It sounds like self-improvement. It sounds like bootstrap religion. That's not what John is preaching to us. One of the good changes that John will preach to us through the book is that we will see obedience to Jesus, even the particulars of his commandments, as not burdensome. He'll say that explicitly in 1 John 5. His commandments aren't meant to break your back. His commandments aren't meant to weigh you down. They're meant to set you free. Legalism is obedience divorced from an idea of who God is. Legalism would be my children walking through the paces of things I give them to do with no idea about who I am or that I love them or what I want for them is best or that what I want for them is actually good and enjoyable. It's the same with our obedience to God. It would be legalism Not if it were concerned with particular commandments. That's not what legalism is. Legalism is a view of the law divorced from the goodness of God as the lawgiver. Legalism is a marriage to the particulars of the law divorced from confidence and assurance that God has loved us and beauty exists as he defines it and articulates it for us. So that over time we come to see the beauty in the things that he has already called beautiful. We come to see the glory of his holiness and enjoy it. It's in all of those things being changed in us slowly and over time by the work of his spirit that obedience and his commandments are not burdensome. All of these things John will preach to us repeatedly through the book actually grow up in our assurance. Not in questioning and doubt. Not in commandment checklists. Not obedience as slaves, but obedience as sons and daughters. All of these things will confirm for us that he's actually active in us and that his activity in us, his action upon us, is gracious and good. Those things will assure us that we actually belong to him. That's the joy that John wants to preach to us through this book that God is light and in Him there's no darkness and that we were once children of darkness who've been translated, moved to His kingdom of light. We are now, like, John, like Jesus preaches in John 12, we are now children of light. As we grow up, we will bear His likeness more and more. God, the faithful and just, 
will faithfully and justly, because of the cross and resurrection, make us faithful and just people. This is how our joy will be full. As we come to enjoy transformed participation in the grace of God. And that participation will happen for you and will happen for me. It will happen in the church corporately and in the lives of Christians individually the way my five-year-old would preach it to you. Not in the abstract, not in a value statement, not in a list of ideals. It will be the grace of God really transformative for real life. That's what Jesus is doing in his gospel. The good news, John says, is that Jesus really came into the world to be a real savior for real people, for real life. And he alluded to it last week that that changes everything. That change starts with us as his new creation. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus the Son to invade your creation not in a militaristic conquest, not carrying judgment and wrath, but carrying grace, promising forgiveness and promising adoption, but also by the work of the Spirit, giving us the privilege and joy of rebirth so that we will immediately wear your forgiveness and your name and your belonging Over time, we will bear your resemblance as you restore us to the image that you created us to bear. Father, in all of these things, by your Spirit, would you be at work filling up our joy. Give us joyful obedience. Grow wisdom in us to see the beauty of your holiness. Let us love Jesus as he is. Grow our discernment to perceive and embrace orthodox teaching, not for its own sake, not for our pride and arrogance, but so that we can love Jesus as he is. Father, in all of these things, would you give us true and deep and sincere love for each other as brothers and sisters joined together under the gospel of your Son? We ask that you would do these things for us and confirm these things for us as we come together to enjoy and celebrate our communion with you and our communion with each other at your communion table. Serve us here to feast on more of the grace of your Son. Confirm your love and our faith and the peace that we share with you because of him. Let us eat and drink this morning with joy and hope and assurance. Let us embrace each other and laugh together and weep together because we have real fellowship with each other bought for us by Jesus the Son in whom and through whom we have fellowship with you and the Spirit. Do these things for us, not because we deserve them, but because you delight to do good to your people. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.